From Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, this is a podcast of KZYX's local coronavirus update from Monday, December 14th, 2020, with Ukiah ER doctor, Dr. Drew Colfax, and Alicia Bales. Since the pandemic began, Dr. Colfax has done regular live updates for KZYX listeners on the latest news and numbers and answered questions from callers. Bad news on my TV screen, bad news on the magazines, bad news on the newspaper, bad news on the elevator, bad news on the street, bad news on my car, bad news on my feet, bad news out of the All bar. right, well, we're used to it. Bad news. <laughs> this is the local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. With the latest, the latest bad news. The latest. Well, there's some actually good news too. The, well, there's for exciting once. news. Um, it's, not, I, it's exciting bad news. No, it's exciting good news. Oh, good. We are going to get the vaccine. The, it's coming. It's coming probably on Wednesday. The first shots will be administered in this county, including uh, you. Potentially. I hope so. Yeah, we'll see. I did the New York Times thing to find out where I am on the list, and I'm, like, way down. At that yeah. Time. It's going to no, be a while. The problem is there are about 90 million essential workers. Um, and so when you, when you need 90 million uh, vaccine doses times two, because the two leading or the two available vaccines require booster, that's a lot of, a lot of vaccines before you get to just about everybody else um so but healthcare workers as well as um elder care residents are getting the first 25 million times two doses fantastic that's great and including right here in mendocino county including right here in mendocino county i and i gotta say i'm i'm surprised that the distribution has been so efficient if it actually gets here and is available come wednesday morning that's that's pretty astonishing and, and kudos to significant organizational efforts um you know, at the at the federal um, and state levels. So, you know, I was concerned it would arrive in the big in the big municipal areas and sort of trickle to the counties, uh, the rural counties, much more slowly. But that apparently is not happening. Now, if we could just get it into the jails and prisons, I would yeah. be almost happy. <laughs> almost happy. Yeah, it's pretty good for me. That is. Yeah. All right. So bad news, however, uh, we have added since Wednesday's show, we've added an additional 175 COVID cases in this county. Wow. Um, And so a couple of milestones, one locally and one nationally, we're going to cross our 2000th confirmed case in the county of Mendocino at some point today uh, when they update the numbers. We are currently at 1,991 positive cases in this county, adding about 29 cases a day over the last week. Uh, Which is about four times what we had going on last month. Yes. No, this is, it's, it's quite it's 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 a robust number. Let's just say that uh, almost thirty eight thousand tests have been run and still steady at around fourteen hundred pending. Uh, our positivity is still pretty high, four point seven eight. Um, so that is not good. Two hundred fifty six active cases, over four hundred in quarantine. A couple hot pockets, um, even controlling for population out in Gowalla and up in Covalo, each have um, about fifteen active cases right now. Um, so. That's disproportionate. Um, the majority of people still um, are in the Ukiah Valley area. 
more more regionally, Sonoma's numbers are about the same. Um, actually, most of Northern California, at least coastal Northern California, is about the same. Humboldt continues to do a little better than the surrounding counties. Um, California cases are up 120% over the two weeks, and so our rate of climb is still pretty high. Uh, we have now climbed. Remember when we crossed 10,000 hospitalized COVID patients in the state of California? We're now at 14,000 hospitalized COVID patients in the state of California. ICU capacity, which is the metric that really I think most of us are really concerned about, is down to we have 7% uh, available bed, uh, available ICU beds in the state of California. Statewide. Yeah, statewide. And there's nowhere else to go once California's beds are full. Yeah, so kind of think of it as like the bulkheads on the Titanic. Um, when one county fills up, uh, it overflows to the next county, and then it overflows to the next county. And if enough of those bulkheads flood, um, then the nose of the ship goes down, and we all go down with it. So, you know, we might be doing better in Northern California regionally, but boy, when we have to start taking cases from, oh, I don't know, say the Mojave Desert area, um, then we're going to uh, get filled up very, very quickly. As the bulkheads fill, could we, could we possibly use a different ship? For our we metaphor. could. Um, the Edmund Fitzgerald comes to mind. Which one was that? <laughs> Did, is it another tragedy? Ah, okay. Anyway, <laughs> that's an image. Um, all right. So continuing on. You know, I I just want to remind listeners that actually we can all avoid COVID if we follow the five COVID rules. And so this would really be a good idea to become a stickler for them again. So just to refresh the listeners' recollection, they are. Wear your face mask. Wash your hands. Stay socially distanced. Six feet at a minimum. Um, I would urge twice that if at all possible. Stay outside as much as possible. Kind of hard to do when it's cold and rainy, which is why we're seeing the surge. And then stay home. And some people say stay home if sick. That kind of needs to be um, brought into just stay home. Don't engage in unnecessary congregate activities right now. Because you could be asymptomatic. You could be asymptomatic. And, and not the, sick, but still contagious. And still spreading it to others, yes. And so it's, you know, it's avoidable. And it would really be nice to get through this next two months, which are going to be grueling, uh, without too many more people in this county getting COVID. Can you just talk a little bit about the wash hands thing again? Because we've made so much of it being spread in the air. And not necessarily on surfaces. So why is the wash hands uh, directive still very important? Well, because we're the, the con it, it may be less important than we thought it was back in March, April, May, June, perhaps July. Um, just because we have now concluded that the majority of these cases are spread through droplets or aerosols um, without necessarily, you know, doing the hand uh, to mouth sort of oral, way, oral airway uh, transmission. However, we do know that it lives on surfaces. Um, and so a component or a fraction of the cases that uh, we are seeing are almost certainly due to um, hand-to-face contact. And so keeping the, keeping the hands clean um, is just going to further limit your risks. There are other things we could be doing. We could be calling for you know face shields in addition to face masks or safety guidelines goggles or glasses. You know, I wear those um, at work, um, you know, pretty much routinely, and so do most of my fellow um, healthcare providers. But, you know, it's been hard enough to get people to wear masks, let alone goggles. 
I was wearing a face shield the other day uh, because I, I was doing some recording here and I thought that would be a good level of safety, uh, to additional level of safety with somebody else in the studio. And it didn't feel like it did that much. No, it doesn't do, it doesn't feel like it does much. It's not as sort of it's burdensome, like, yeah, say, as a face mask. Right. Um, but, you know, we know that we can get it through our eyes. Um, and so, you know, whether there are a significant number of actual cases through that that route of transmission I, we don't know um and whether the face shields actually significantly reduce that route of transmission we also don't know but you know all things being equal it probably helps some it kind of follows the swiss cheese model of covid transmission right every little thing that you do sort of works to trap or slow down the rate of transmission from, from right. one to another right it's kind of a splash guard yes <laughs> <laughs> so, right. um, the other grim milestone is some point today, if not already, uh, we're going to cross our 300,000th death um, in this country from COVID. And I actually have an email from a listener saying, shouldn't we talk about the number of anticipated deaths based on historical data? Um, which is, the answer to that is yes, um, excess mortality would be a much more accurate um, summary of COVID-related uh, deaths. And at this point, both, you know, that 300,000 number and then taking into account excess mortality suggests that the mortality rate from this pandemic, all things taken together, is over 400,000 people already in this country. That's in this country. That's yes. not worldwide. No, that's, that's, this, that's the United States. Country. Yes, 400,000. Yes. I am probably not alone in thinking about how, how we're going to recover from this. I mean, we're not going to just snap back to normal when everybody gets the vaccine. We've got, I mean, this is a historically devastating thing for any country to go through. And I mean, I just can't imagine the process of coming back to life it's going to be laborious and you know just getting the vaccine um, is going to take a long time and getting that administered um, getting the immunity up to 75 80 percent is going to take a long time you know we've lost an entire year of education for children uh, we've you know so many businesses have gone out uh, out of business um, and the economic impact particularly amongst the poorest and the minority um, is just disproportionately you know, an order of magnitude greater um, to setting aside the disproportionate impact of COVID directly on uh, the poorest and the minority uh, members, both of this county and nationally. So it's going to be a long recovery. It's going to take years. And, you know, we aren't really seeing a lot of, you know, outpouring of federal support to try to get that going um, unless you're a Fortune 500 company. Well, and then there's the two things. In addition, there's the 400,000 grieving families. Yes. Uh, that uh, just a devastating uh, grief that we're experiencing collectively. But you know, everybody has that that severe loss. And then we also have the the grief of the betrayal of our federal government to allow this unnecessary sort of genocide to happen in this country. And I think. Uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what the aftermath and the reckoning is and what we do as a society to, to come to terms with what has happened. Yeah, it's it's it certainly represents a, a significant and colossal failure um, of the government to protect its citizens. Um, there's no there's no doubt about that. I would I would hesitate to use the word genocide um, as that would suggest an intentionality, which I'm not sure that exists. I don't think 
think uh, the federal government set out to kill 400,000 Americans. It simply didn't manage to keep them safe. Anyway, I thought I was dark, Alicia, I but woo. sorry, I yeah. let it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put I'll put it back in. I'll I'll keep it tucked in. Um, but it's just one of the things that's crossing my my mind. Um, we mm. have some information about testing coming yes. up in the county. Are, do you? Are, is your rundown complete? We, I, I, it's complete enough. Why don't we talk about some testing? Okay, good. And then we will open up the phone lines. The number here in the studio is 707-895-2448, and we welcome your calls here. Uh, so for get testing, getting tested for COVID-19 in Mendocino County, testing is coming back online uh, with abandon here. So we've got Fort Bragg Veterans Hall every Tuesday at 9 a.m. First come, first serve, 165 swabs. So that's Fort Bragg Veterans Hall every Tuesday at 9 a.m. until it comes online seven days a week. So oh. that should be in a couple a couple weeks. So every Tuesday. And then, those, are, those are free tests, too. These are free, yes. Yeah. This is a, the other lane of the Optum serve. Yes. Uh, Point Arena Veterans Hall, and it's surveillance testing. Yeah. So for people who Asymptomatic don't have individuals. Symptoms. Exactly. I'm learning. Point Arena Veterans Hall on the 18th, which is next Friday. No, this, this Friday. This Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the 18th at 9:30 a.m. Point Arena Veterans Hall at 451 School Street. Again, first come, first serve. Anderson Valley School on Anderson Valley Way in Boonville. Uh, also Friday, starting at 7 a.m. First come, first serve. Just to be clear, that's at the elementary school then. What's one two three zero zero Anderson Valley Way? That sounds like the elementary. Okay. So Anderson Valley School at 12300 Anderson Valley Way. Is there a number you might want to call to confirm that? Because that had been done at the high school parking lot. I know. Well, this is the flyer uh, that I got from the county website. Okay. So you could call the Mendocino County Coronavirus Call Center just to confirm. And I have that number. It's 472-2759. And when we come back on Wednesday, we'll confirm that too. Or you could just go to both as they're fairly close yeah it's not like yeah i mean isn't one right right next to the... it's a mile apart yeah. <laughs> okay and then finally uh asymptomatic testing uh seven days a week in ukiah at optum serve which is at the fairgrounds on state street in ukiah from 7 a.m to 7 p.m i was in there yesterday it was crickets so i think there's plenty of Capacity. opportunity yeah <laughs> you can go in and get tested if you're concerned good all right Phone lines are lighting up. Let's go ahead and take our first call. Good afternoon, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Good afternoon. This is Alfonso from the Deep End. Um, Yeah, I called in on Friday with a question, and it was answered. And there were three parts kind of to it. When it got to my part, I was disconnected at the studio. (laughs) So I really didn't get the answer. And I would like to ask it again, and maybe Dr. Colfax can give me some light on this issue. And, uh, sure, go for but, it. You might get a different answer than what was, whatever was provided on Friday. Yeah, I'm not sure either. You guys know for certain, but I, you're far, far ahead of me on this. Anyway, uh, I was concerned about, <clears throat> like, uh, when we're out and about and shopping, and now that we're getting a higher infection rate, and, you know, I observe all those, you know, I observe everything, except I do have to go to town once in a while for groceries, et cetera. And, uh, and I also wear goggles. I think I'm the only guy I see out there with the goggles on because Fachi said that's perfect. It's a good look. <laughs> yeah, somebody said, oh, I like your goggles. They're cool. <laughs> I thought, I don't know if they're cool, but they're preventive. 
Anyway, the question is, I get on so somebody else can have a question answered. Um, when I come home, you know, I've been careful to, like, change the clothes and change shoes at the door, et cetera. And I'm wondering now, with the aerosols, whether we should take a bath or at least wash hair. I think washing the face would be a minimum. But um, what do you think on that? Because the aerosols are floating around out there. And if you come home and you have it on you, you go to sleep, you rub it off on the on the pillow, and then maybe your eyes or nose might pick it up. I think that's pretty far-fetched. But yeah, it's and so I, I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, I can tell you that when I come home from work, where I am indoors and exposed to people continuously for 10, 12 hours, I, I take all my clothes off and put them immediately in the washer and get immediately in the shower before really I do anything else. Um, for just sort of going out and about and doing errands in a grocery store where you are not indoors and not in continuous, you know, proximate contact with anybody for an extended period, I'm not sure that I would recommend that level of adherence to protocol. Um, you know, it's just that's probably overkill. It's certainly not a bad idea. I, I think that the risks associated with not doing it are quite low indeed, given sort of what we engage in um, in terms of daily, you know, necessary shopping activities. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to suggest you not do it. Um, I just I don't want to I don't want to issue that edict because I really don't think that that's that I don't think that that's necessary for everybody to do. Couldn't hurt. It, it won't hurt. Um, but it's you know, it's an additional covid burden and we have enough of those right now. All right. Thanks for the call, caller. Let's take our next one. Good afternoon, caller. You're live on the air. Did I lose you? Hello? <phone rings> caller, you are live on the air. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for taking my call, and thank you so much for this show. I just really appreciate it. My question is... Um, our son and his girlfriend contracted COVID and had positive test results and quarantined and have completely recovered. And are we safe to get together with them, like, over the holidays now? Well, um, so I, if they've completely recovered, uh, the the best data at this point suggests that you have a fairly high degree of ongoing immunity um, from recontracting COVID. And certainly, you have a fair amount of protection from getting very sick uh, from a reinfection. We do know that some people have gotten reinfected with a genetically different strain of COVID, um, but those individuals haven't gotten um, sort of hospitalization level sick the second time around. So the risks um, to uh, these individuals, um, your son, I think you said, and, and his girlfriend or partner, um, are low because they've already recovered from COVID. However, uh, we really don't know yet whether it's possible for individuals such as this to actually carry the virus and shed it. And so there is some risk to you um, with commingling with these individuals. We don't really have data as to how high that risk is. Um, it's probably significantly reduced um, when compared to a, you know, a, a gathering of COVID naive individuals, but that data um, and that evidence is still unfortunately fairly sparse. Bottom line, you know, is it possible for you to get to get together? 
Yeah, it's possible. Um, would I be a little bit reluctant to um, encourage that or recommend that? Yes, I would, uh, just because we really don't have the data. I really don't know what sort of risk category you are in or anybody else who would be in that household uh, would. We are we are in our 70s. Yeah. And, um, yes. It wouldn't be a group gathering. It would just be the four of us. Yeah, so if, um, you're, if you're in your 70s, and I, I presume that this COVID infection that these that your family had is fairly remote. We're talking weeks and weeks ago at this point or more recently yeah it's it's been probably three weeks they quarantined for two weeks and are back at work and recovered yeah so they're they're not shedding virus anymore so they're not going to be contagious to you um and so in in your scenario that's actually a fairly low risk gathering and and i'm surprised to hear myself say that because i I, too I, i generally don't encourage it but that risk uh, of those two individuals to you is is quite low. However, right. you're in, you're in your 70s, um, and you know this is just one holiday. You know it's a big one. I love the holidays, but I I would really rather see you make it through this one without getting COVID um, to make it you know to many more. Um, and so I would I would really um, think long and hard as to whether you are comfortable taking on this risk, which is very hard to quantify even nine months into the pandemic. Yeah, I was going to ask for a quantification. Yeah, there's just, there's, there's, it's not only hard, it's impossible. We just don't have the data yet. Um, And so whether, you know, whether your family members could have picked it up again and are asymptomatically shedding virus again between, you know, now and the holidays, that's possible. We don't know. Um, It's it's quite a bit less likely, um, but it's still not you know, really quantifiable. All right, caller. Thank you so much for that call. It was a good question. Good afternoon, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Um, I just wanted to complain about another business in Ukiah. I know we're not supposed to go into those places if we see that they're not wearing masks, but it's like, can't we just like wear a mask in there and then they'll like put one on when we come in there? I guess I'm just ranting, but I really wanted to call just to um, tell you guys that there is a Hopland surveillance testing going on this coming Thursday, um, and I believe the time it starts at 10 a.m. Um, it's at the drive-through right there where the big casino sign is. I'm on the 101, and um, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you guys. And um, thank you again for your right. show. And that is uh, Thursday, this Thursday, the 17th. Yes, that's what I have in my phone is this Thursday the 17th. Oh, and one question for Dr. Colfax. Um, I am scheduled to go get a blood uh, donation done at the Ukiah High School on the 18th, um, actually, of this month. They're doing this, and uh, they said that they, you know, with the blood donation, they can test you for the antibodies. Is that still accurate, do you think, enough, or... Well, so, just- there are a lot of antibody tests out there. I don't know which one they'd be doing through the Red Cross. Um, the- um, but it's not Red Cross. It's some other, it's a different company. I don't know. I, I should have got more information, but it's not Red Cross. It is at the Ukiah High School, though. Yeah, it's, it, the, the problem with antibody testing still is we're not really sure how to interpret the results. Um, okay. if, if you have antibodies, it's not... There's not enough data to support any changing in one's behavior. So I have the option to get 
uh, my own antibodies tested at any point as a healthcare worker in the county, um, and I haven't bothered. Um, and most of the okay. people I work with haven't bothered because the data supporting any any interpretation really just isn't there yet. Um, right. So give blood, get an antibody test just because it might be interesting, but I, yeah. it, you can't really do anything with that data other than go, huh, I have antibodies to coronavirus, now I still need to follow the five COVID rules. Um, so... <laughs> All right. Thanks for the call, caller. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, her her complaint is one that I have seen in businesses. I have walked into multiple businesses in Ukiah, and when I walk in, I see the people pull the masks over their face, you know, as, as they've been aerosolizing, you know, uh, yes. COVID, part, you know, COVID droplets, you know, up until I open the door. Sort of missing the point there. Yes. yes All right. Indeed. Let's take our next call. Good afternoon, caller. You're live on the air. Huh. How do I do that? I don't know. I'm very talented. Know. Good. Oh, and then... One more try here. Good afternoon, caller. You're live on the air. Hello? Hey, that's you. You're live. Oh, hi. Um, my name is Emma. Um, I am a nurse working in Lake County, actually. Um, I have two questions. My first question is, um, you know, the COVID vaccine I know started today, and um, I know its priority is going to hospitals. I am, am a hospice nurse, and... My employer specifically um, has not said anything about distributing or having the vaccine, and I'm just wondering, like, where, um, you know, hospice nurses fall in the tiers of um, receiving the vaccine. That's my first question, if you know that. My second question is, um, I'm actually going to Kenya um, in two weeks for a nursing internship, and I'm getting mixed mixed, um, information about when I come back, uh, if I have to quarantine or not, if I present a negative COVID test when I get back, if I have to quarantine just for traveling um, internationally. So those are my two questions. And I'm, I'm sorry, you broke up on your first question. Was it when you're going to be able to get the vaccine? Yes. Um, I'm a nurse currently. I work for hospitals, sure. however, and I know, I know that the vaccines are going first to um, hospitals. I'm just wondering... You know when, um, like, other types of nurses are um, can get the vaccine. Yeah, so that's that. That's probably gonna. You would probably be in the early second wave of healthcare workers, is my guess. Um, you know whether that you know is evenly applied uh, throughout the county, um, but you certainly are a high risk and essential healthcare worker, um, and so vaccinating you would be you know very very high, maybe not quite as high as you know people who work in the intensive care unit or the emergency rooms of the county, but you'd be in that next level um, without a doubt. And the question becomes whether our 940 some vaccines are enough to get to somebody. It you're sort of risk um, level. You know, I, I don't have the, the answer to that. It's really going to depend on how many people present. Um, your second question about coming back from international travel, you know, I, I the problem with Africa is the data is pretty lousy. Um, and so we don't have a great sense of what the prevalence is in any of the uh, sub-Saharan countries. Um, and so I, the recommendation and the CDC guideline on this would be a seven-day quarantine um, followed by a test um, and then pr- 
uh, optimally, followed by another test about 48 to 72 hours. Um, so a test at day 7 and another one at day 9 or 10. Um, and then you could come out of quarantine. It's no longer that two-week quarantine, thank goodness. But still, at least a week with a negative test. Okay. Thank All you right. guys so much. I love yourself. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling. I think we have time for one more. Let's but go but for it's it. got to be super quick because we have a special program coming up next. Okay. Think we can do it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was very quick. All right. Well, and that was it. Oh, no. Here we go. Good afternoon, caller. Do you have a quick question? Alicia? Yeah. Uh, what about the update on the, the outbreak in Guadalajara? Tell us what you know, because we tried to find out, and I haven't been able to find anything additionally out. So tell us what you know about Guadalajara. Well, the, it's in the surf market, in the Point Arena Lighthouse restaurant. The uh, people that have Franny's Cup and Saucer are closing down because they don't want to, win, um, you know, infect their people a number of places have closed stores so i it just seems like rather a, a large um population to have an outbreak and no one says anything about it on the radio agreed yes yeah, thank no, you it's yeah i mean we know that there are 14 active cases in guala as of yesterday evening uh, which is so you do know that okay yeah, yeah and so you know whether that's just from those locations that you just rattled off i don't know but 14 in a community that size is a very high number of active cases very high um yeah. Covilo, you know has historically also been hit very hard from this virus and they currently have 19 active cases so you know those two very rural ends of the county um, are disproportionately um, seeing the effects. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't have any more data other than uh, what I just what I just related. It's good that there's going to be COVID testing out at Point Arena, um, you know, this, what is it? Friday. It, Friday. Um, and so I would certainly urge anybody in that South Coast region to get tested on Friday um, just to sort of get a sense of, you know, who has it and how widespread it is. All right. Thank you so much for that call. All right. Okay, that's going to bring us to the end. It's 3.30, almost on the dot. And we actually have a special program coming up next. We're going to play a 30-minute excerpt from a webinar that happened on Wednesday last week of Healthy Mendocino's conversation with the county's new Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force. And members of the task force talked about their work to combat racism in Mendocino County and their efforts to tackle structural health inequities during the pandemic. Um, It was a really powerful event and very timely. uh, And we're going to play just an excerpt of it, but you can hear the entire webinar and find out more about the task force at healthymendocino.org. And the other thing I want to let you know is that... uh, President-elect Biden, who has officially been voted in by the Electoral College, is going to give a speech at 7.30 Eastern Standard Time, which is at 4.30 our time. And we are going to carry that as an NPR special broadcast. So we'll, we'll be preempting the second half of Democracy Now! coming up in just about an hour. So stay tuned for that. Uh, anything else you want to... You want to leave on? I don't think so. As a programming note, I am working Wednesday, so I'm going to have to call in for the show on Wednesday. And I'm hoping, I think I may have Dr. Lovato um, on as well, as he's part of the COVID vaccine distribution um, chain of command. And you may be experiencing a little bit of COVID vaccine symptoms. I'll let you know. I hope so. No, I hope I'll a little you know. mild, no. just to let you know it's working. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll keep our fingers crossed for you getting vaccinated on Wednesday, and we will be back three to three thirty next this coming Wednesday, day after tomorrow, with more local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. Thanks again. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, listeners.
And now let's hear the Equity, Inclusion, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force webinar from Healthy Mendocino. Welcome everybody to this webinar. This is another Healthy Mendocino webinar. And we are here to have a conversation with the newly formed Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force. Thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to be able to present this group to you and have them talk to you about the work they're going to be doing in the county. My name is Patrice Moscolo, and I'm the program manager for Healthy Mendocino. And Healthy Mendocino is a program of North Coast Opportunities. Again, conversation with the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force, and we're going to be asking them to talk to us about education, communication, healing, and breaking barriers. Our presenters um, for today are going to be um, Mehdi Parrott, who's a pediatric nurse practitioner at Uka Ukiah Valley Rural Health Center. Um, I believe that's the um, Adventist Health Ukiah Valley. Ulysses Velasco, Velasco, who's the Vice President of Students of Services at Mendocino College, J.D. Shepard, who's President of Leadership Solutions, Roseanne Ibarra, who is Director of Community Wellbeing at Adventist Health, and Erica Nunez-Reyes, who's Mendocino Latinx Alliance Steering Committee member. Hi, everyone. Roseanne Ibarra again. So I, my portion of the presentation today, I'll be talking specifically about the formation of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force from Mendocino, and then um, also talking about the work that we're doing and towards dismantling racism. So in terms of setting the context or sort of providing the frame of how we got here, so the, the concept or idea for this task force was born back in February, um, and it, it it stemmed from a conversation that um, Latino leaders came together. Supervisor Hashtag had reached out and wanted to do a um, Hispanic workshop. And so we were brainstorming on ideas and things that we wanted to um, convey to our leaders. And then also thinking about, okay, here's an opportunity and what is it that we would like to see in our community? And so there was um, and the idea about the task force that came forward. And then fast forward um, into the pandemic, uh, we, Ukiah Vecinos en Acción, who is a Latino group based in Ukiah and also serving our, our outlying communities, reached out to those eight groups and regarding COVID and the lack of information that's in Spanish and the disproportionate impact on the, the Latinx community. And so we came together on a joint letter that was submitted in June. And then in July, um, there was a presentation, a formal presentation that was made, and that's when we put forward the idea for the formation of a task force. Then from August to September, the, um, there were individuals from those groups. And so those groups are Ukiah Vecinos en Acción, Mendocino Latinx Alliance, Fort Bragg Latino Coalition, South Coast Latino Coalition, Nuestra Alianza and Willits, Sueño Latino in Anderson Valley, Al Punto and Mendo Latino. And it was in October when we um, had our first official meeting that was launched. And so during our time, what we've accomplished so far, um, we've been able to identify our common experiences. So I, I wanna back up a little bit with the formation of the task force. So it was individuals, 
some representatives from those eight groups. And then we also expanded and invited members from the Native American community, African American community, and our, our Asian American community, and allies. So it, it was about a, a group of about 15 individuals or so that, that have been meeting. And during that time, so we shared our common experiences of racism and identified goals to, to create, the purpose was to create a framework for the task force. We've completed 44 community interviews. The intention there was to get a sampling, so to expand just beyond our own voices, but to hear from other people of color in Mendocino County, what have been your experiences related to racism? And so this is the, our first, um, our first uh, act of reaching out into the community to get to hear from, from individuals. We will continue to do that as we proceed through this work. And we've also um, created our chart, you know, the formal structure that goes along with, with groups and then defined a communication strategy. Our vision is to dismantle institutional racism in Mendocino County by 2023. And we'll do this by lifting up the voices of the lived experiences at all intersections, honoring and mirroring the diversity of the community, fostering a safe work environment, while establishing authentic conversations where honesty matters and educate our community on intersecting identities and multicultural spectrum of abilities and strength. Our mission is to educate leaders and shift institutional norms to prioritize equity in all things. And in terms of our work, so it's divided up into four categories, education, communication, healing, breaking barriers. So under education, um, our, we see our goal as educating the community and leaders on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're currently developing a locally informed training about the lived experiences of people of color in Mendocino County. Under communication, Planning is underway for a podcast called Project Reparations. Our first topic will be the traumas we carry, where we'll hear from community members. And really the intention here is to recognize that we've internalized trauma and oftentimes we might not even recognize it ourselves. But, but the intent here is to really start the conversations. We see this as part of the healing work to lift up those voices that have been in the shadows and to provide a platform um, where people can speak. Under breaking barriers, there's been a tremendous amount of work that the COVID work group has um, been involved in and has initiated. So there's been conversations with um, county leaders and there's been progress that has been made. So, so currently there are simultaneous English and Spanish COVID updates. So there's simultaneous interpretation that happens. Our press releases and, and you'll also see that the dashboard is both in English and Spanish. And um, there's now a strategy in place to do outreach to our vulnerable communication communities. So um, the county has engaged North Coast opportunities to lead that effort. The Board of Supervisors also allocated funding um, and, and is contracting with Nuestra Alianza, um, the group in Willits, to launch a pilot for the Promotores de Salud. That's a community health worker model. It's a six-month pilot, and they'll be working in Willits and Ukiah. 
So we're very excited about the progress that has been made and we thank the um, County Board of Supervisors and Health and Human Services um, for, for the work that's been occurring. Also under breaking barriers, um, we're going, we have reached out to our tribal nation. So here in Mendocino County, we have 10 federally recognized tribes. We uh, would like to engage with those nations to um, support the communication and um, the government to government relationship relation between our tribal nations and our county and, and city governments. Um, mapping equity is also something that's on our list that we would like to tackle so that we can identify where are there points along um, thinking about all of the systems that we have, right, and then thinking about Mendocino County, where are there opportunities where we can make investments that will um, enhance equity in our community. And then, of course, there will be other issues as we proceed through this work that will arise. So, for example, there's um, an issue that's on our radar regarding applications for housing assistance and support. We want to make sure that, that those are available in Spanish and that there's also individuals at that agency to support uh, monolingual Spanish speakers. For individuals that are interested in participating, um, we invite you and encourage you to, to um, join the COVID-19 workgroup. So that work group is meeting the second Thursday of the month from 5 to 6.30. So our next meeting will be January 14th at 5 o'clock. Also, with that local training that we're planning, um, we invite the public to let us know if you have um, thoughts about what should be included. Also, regarding the podcast, um, we're looking for individuals that have expertise in that area and then also ideas. So please reach out to us. You'll see that our email address is on the screen. It's mendocinodei at gmail.com. Thanks, Roseanne. I do have a comment and a question from our participants. They, um, they sort of complement each other. Uh, Liliana comments, there's a, there's a lot of resources for our community, but I believe one problem is our Latino community is not aware of the resource available for them. And Rebecca, um, poses a question, can you explain more about what the pilot with the CHWs will do? And um, so I believe that question specific to the Promotores de Salud pilot that Nuestra Alianza is launching. So that's a community health worker model. So there's individuals from, so members of the Latino community um, that are fluent in Spanish that have been trained. There's eight individuals. Um, and again, Nuestra Alianza is leading that. Eight individuals that have been trained on um, information related to COVID and how individuals can be safe. Um, also, um, there's a training that's going to be happening, and I don't remember the date, regarding worker rights. So what, what um, sort of safety precautions can an employee request? And so those eight individuals are going to be deployed in the community to um, interface with community members. So the beauty about this program and it's in other communities is that you have members of the community that are the ones playing um, health information. And so the intention is that this is targeted outreach to the Latino population um, specifically regarding COVID. Um, and Paula asked if you happen to know why the pilot program is only in the inland part of the county. Um, I, I don't 
uh, feel that I'm in a position to answer that question specifically, uh, but Nuestra Alianza is based in Willits and, and they're, they're the group that stepped forward and said that they would be able to do a pilot project at Willits and then also realizing that our um, high number of cases are in Ukiah, so they've also expanded to Ukiah. Any other questions? Um, not at this time. Thanks, Molly. Erica. Hello, everybody. So when we first started our work with the task force, we interviewed people of color in Mendocino County and asked candidly how they felt about racism as it pertained to this county. And these were some of their responses. So if we could play the first video. A Latina mother who has lived in the county for 31 years said, someone threw my food at me because I believed that they thought I had COVID, which I didn't. And I can't help but think it was because of my race. An African-American mother of three who has lived in the county for 23 years said, the denial of racism has to be the most difficult experience that I have ever experienced. A Native American father who's lived in the county for 20 years said, getting stopped by law enforcement for no reason, asked if I was on probation rather than for license and registration. Institutional racism is sometimes subtle. People won't address what they can't see or don't believe is real. So I think a good question for everyone to ask themselves is where do I personally stand on the issue of racism? where has my privilege taken center stage because racism isn't only lynchings and police brutality or verbally abusing somebody in the store for speaking a foreign language the backbone of racism is really supported by the underlying issues or the quiet inequities and the ones everyone knows about but refuses to directly address and it's not just people in power making the quiet inequities laws, it's the day-to-day -day situations that support these laws. So when I hear someone say something like, I don't see color, I think to myself, how do you see all these quiet inequities happening around people of color, like unequal pay, unequal hiring practices, and unequal health disparities, among others, and say something like, I don't see color, as if nothing is happening here. And it's a figurative slap in the face to a person of color who is forced to see color every day the second they walk out the door or they turn on the TV to see another black man or woman unjustly shot or a parent who is forced to have the talk with their teenager about why it isn't possible to go for a walk after dark or play with their toy guns outside. An ally is not just calling out racist actions happening around them or on TV, and it's not just hashtagging love is love or Black Lives Matter. It's not just giving a person of color the dialogue of an ally. It's your own day-to-day -day actions that make a difference in ending racism. Okay, so Rich from United Way of Wine Country asks, how does an organization go about developing a board and other governing entities that are truly representative of the communities they serve, as well as the partners they work with to bring about lasting positive change? Specifically, he's worried about organizations tinkering around the edges rather than taking the bold steps to truly free ourselves from institutional systems that stifle real change. 
That's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, I think there's kind of two questions in that. One is the kind of the logistics of how do you go about doing that? How do you go about getting folks in? And then the other piece is how do you make it real? Um, I heard that tinkering around the edges, right? So the how do you go, how do you do it is um, kind of in the same way we do, um, we look for other skills. First of all, we go to those communities. Um, we fact that we don't, we get rid of the bias that uh, people have deficiencies because of their race. And we think of them as having um, skills and abilities and not get rid of that bias. So that's one. Uh, the other is then creating an environment so that once you get them in, they want to stay. Um, if we do this whole checkbox, uh, we go ahead and get this person of color in because we want more people of color in. You don't do anything about the environment that you're bringing them into. Um, that's not going to be super helpful. Either they'll leave um, or they won't be authentic. So one is go ahead and reach out into the community and the communities that you want. Um, we look at what's happening right now in terms of putting together an administration um, at the national level for uh, the president-elect. There's lots of people of color that are being invited and put into that. And people before said, why can't people say, well, I, I can't find anyone who's that next who can do this job, or I can't find an African-American person to do this job, or there's no Native Americans didn't, people didn't apply, usually it's that next didn't, didn't apply. So one, we have to make it so that um, we're removing those barriers like we did in the equity uh, infographic that we had up. The other is making sure that the environment that we are putting, putting people into, that we put the effort and energy and passion into um, ongoing, making sure that that environment is welcoming for people of color. Um, and then also asking the people of color um, what it is they need to be there. Um, they have the answers. Um, and it'll be different for each community, of course, but make sure that they have the answers. The other part then about making it lasting, uh, again, I think that's um, a, a commitment to being okay with not being okay. Being okay with someone saying this is not working, being okay with someone saying um, uh, this needs to change or we need to make improvements here without taking it really personally, um, just saying, okay, I, I get it, thank you, and let's work on that. Uh, so again, the outreach, the environment, and um, not checking a box. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Any other members of the task force um, want to answer that? Okay, so Cindy asks, is there consideration for encouraging local government organizations or agencies to declare racism as a public health crisis? Several counties and cities in California have adopted resolutions in recent months. Yes. <laughs> Roseanne, do you want to speak of that? I mean, we, we don't have the power to do that, but absolutely, we know that um, racism is a public health crisis, and we look forward to that happening in Mendocino County. Um, but Roseanne, I think you were going to say something. I just wanted to say, you know, the, the task force, we've had a number of conversations and, and thinking about what is it that we want to put in place, and so that's something that I think briefly came up, but we also need to put that on the list of things that we want to do. So thank you for bringing that forward. Thank you. Um, okay, here's another question that came in uh, through the email. Sam asks, it has become all too evident that there are many structural and cultural barriers to your worthy goals of equity, diversity, and inclusion for the Latinx community. 
I'm wondering how your members regard the potential benefits of better access to capital and new business development in achieving those goals. I think at the core of the question and the the response is access, equal access and opportunity for folks, which doesn't always exist. One of the, <clears throat> the conversations that we've had is about um, like the simple process of applying for a job. It is very difficult depending on, on the institution or the organization on going through a process for applying for a position. Um, one, of the, one of the groups that I'm a part of, the Medicinal Latinx Alliance, our very first uh, uh, talk was about this misconception that there's a pipeline issue of uh, Latinos not being prepared for or not enough Latinos prepared for those kind of high, higher level, high paying positions. And that's just not true. So part of the issue is access. Institutions and organizations and employers don't do enough to reach out and meet the the um, the candidates or the interested folks where they are. They expect folks to just come to them it, because it's easy. Uh, as as an employer, as, as someone that hires people, it's easy to just say, "I have a job. It's a great executive level position. You come to me." But if you haven't done the work to engage the community, if you haven't done the work to reach out to folks, if you haven't done the, the work to uh, give them the tools that are required to go through the process, then you're going to exclude a large group of people. So we're talking about access and who you're excluding in that process. Additionally, we also have, um, uh, we've reached a level of comfort that it's somebody else's responsibility to figure it out. It's not our responsibility. So if they really want it, they should do the work and, and come and get it. And we have to really change that, that mindset. And if we want diversity in our workforce, if we want, and I don't, if we need to have the conversation as to why diversity is good for an organization, then we need a completely separate webinar for that. So I'm, I'm functioning under the, the assumption that we all believe diversity is good. So we, are reach, we can reach diversity by being proactive and intentional about what we're trying to achieve. If we need to be representative of the communities that we're serving, then let's take a look around internally. What are, whose voice are we missing? And how do we include that voice? So if we need to hire specific people that represent a certain community that we currently do not represent, Let's put all our resources in, in uh, uh, attracting somebody from that community to include in, in at the table and help your institution, because that's really what it's all about. If you start there, then everything else trickles down from that. You're going to have people at higher level positions, at executive level positions, that only not only benefit the institution, but it benefits them personally and their families. And then you can talk about the trickle down effect that that um, that can impact. So it really starts with you as an employer, if you have that capability, making a concerted effort to do an internal inventory of what's missing, what is it that you need to improve as an organization, and whose voice needs to be included in that. So again, it doesn't necessarily answer the question directly because that's a uh, that's a complete different webinar. But I think you can start there. Can Ulysses, can I just can I build on a little bit of what you mm -hmm. said? Um, the other thing we could do in terms of uh, economy, the economics is people are working on restorative um, investments. And so um, it's restorative investing or impact investing. 
And so where foundations are actually looking at um, how do we give money or how do we invest in communities using those social determinants of health. Um, and if we do that, then we, we uh, when we talk about impact investing or restorative investments, um, giving people, removing barriers for um, economic um, advantage for communities of color. And so, for example, if I have uh, living in, a, in, a, in an area where that was formerly redlined, even though, like I said, in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, you're not allowed to do that anymore. But still, if I if there if I have to look back and you're going to give me a loan and I live in that area, um, there's still uh, comps or comparisons, and have to do that. And so my what I what I'm going to borrow in that area, I'm going to have to come up with way more capital that I don't have um, to start my business venture than someone who lives in an area that was not redlined. And so there's everything that Ulysses just talked from, about, from the individual access to um, income and earning opportunities to the larger or a bigger system or want to kind of say like uh, ripple effect out of how communities of color have access to capital businesses um, and um, are able to, 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 again, buy homes and pass on wealth. Um, to their to their to their children and their and continue to do that in ways they've not been able to do that in the past. Um, this was an excellent presentation, um, and I want to thank all our presenters for being here and sharing your knowledge and your expertise. Um, we are going to have a recording of this, and I will try make sure that I can um, get copies of the slides. And also, we'll have a copy of the chat. There is an awful lot of really great responses on the chat. And so we'll get that put on the website along with the recording and, and the PowerPoint slides so everyone can see them and share them. So this is an exciting time. There's a lot that's going on here in Mendocino County. So thank you for participating and being part of this discussion. And... Um, Again, thank you for the presenters, and we will notify you somehow when we have everything up on the website and ready for you to, um, to see. Um, so thank you, and have a good afternoon. Thank you. Bye, -bye everybody. You've been listening to the local coronavirus update from KZYXNZ Mendocino County Public Broadcasting in Philo, California. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Mask Awareness Project of North Coast Opportunities. To hear this program live, tune in on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Williton Ukiah at 91.5 FM, and in Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Or you can hear us anywhere at kzyx.org, where you can also find out how to donate or become a KZYX member. Thanks for listening.